Well, good morning. It's really, really good to see all of you here in the worship center. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are in the north end of the building in the venue. As we begin today, I'd like for you to consider a scenario with me that for some of you may not be all that far-fetched. Here it is. So let's say you have a 16-year-old son who just got his driver's license, and you're leaving town for the weekend, and you're leaving your car in the driveway, and your son actually has a set of keys. And on Friday afternoon before you leave, you have one very simple directive, very clear, very precise, do not drive the car while I'm gone, okay? And you've got, you have good reasons for that. The car needs brake work. The kid is barely driven by himself ever. There's bad weather coming, all sorts of things. You've, you've made allowances for, you know, getting, getting your son wherever he needs to go. But in addition to telling him, do not drive my car while you're gone, you also say, but if you do drive the car <clears throat> and you have a fender bender, call your aunt because she would do anything for you. And if you get low on gas, here's 20 bucks. And if you get a speeding ticket, I'll cover it. I'll see you on Sunday night. What are you thinking? You're thinking, that's very irresponsible parenting. Who would do that? Why do you even bring that up? Well, I bring it up because the passage, we're returning to 1 John today, and the passage we're going to look at basically lays out this pattern. In 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, John tells his readers, number one, I'm writing these things so that you do not sin. But number two, if you do sin, Jesus has it covered, absolutely covered. And this is not John being irresponsible. This is John actually taking into account the reality of indwelling sin in the life of every believer and taking into account the reality, the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. Throughout 1 John, John argues that those who know God should put away sin in a very decisive way and live as his daughters and son, displaying the family resemblance, especially when it comes to loving one another. But John doesn't pretend that believers don't sin, that believers can't sin. He makes clear in chapter 1, we do sin, everyone has sinned. And so, but he's very much aware of our struggle with sin. And so in today's passage, John gives us a foundational perspective about sin that every single one of us really needs to get. And so he tells us two things. He tells us, first of all, about God's desire that we not sin. And then second, God's provision if we do sin, which we all do. Again, I think we're going to see that, that John's instruction reflects the reality of indwelling sin as well as the, the sufficiency of the cross. First of all, God's desire that we not sin. <clears throat> Notice how John expresses himself in the first half of 1 John 2, 1. <clears throat> he writes this, My little children, I am writing th- these things to you so that you may not sin. By addressing them, and these are men, women, and children, he addresses them all as my little children. He's expressing his affection for them as their spiritual father. He had likely led them to Christ. He had invested deeply in them. He cared passionately about how they're they're doing. 
And so repeatedly through this letter, he calls them my little children. And what's he doing? He's communicating, I'm not coming to you with some unreasonable, heavy-handed commands. I'm speaking to you as a father who deeply cares about your life with God. And significantly, John tells him, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And these things is primarily referring to what he wrote in chapter 1 about walking in the light and about confessing our sin to God. And so I just, I just love John's transparency here. He's telling them, just so you know, I'm not writing just to give you more abstract spiritual knowledge. I'm writing to you because I want you to actually change your behavior. I want to see you mature in your walk with God. I'm writing as your spiritual father who only wants the best for you. And so this informs how we read 1 John. It really is the perspective of how we read all of Scripture because Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable. It's profitable in correcting our lives, keeping us from sin, all sorts of things. So, for example, back in chapter 1 in John, 1 John 1, 7, John wrote, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And so this prospect of genuine, uh, substantive fellowship with other people should give us a vision for walking in the light. In other words, standing in the full light versus kind of skulking around in the darkness, right? And so we all know how this is true. If it's true in your friend group, it's true in your family, it's true in your Bible study, whatever. If there is unconfessed, hidden sin, you will stay in shallow, superficial relationship. I mean, it's just the case, absolutely. But if you have a group of people where you're all walking in the light, meaning you're inviting God's scrutiny, you're allowing God to discipline you, you're experiencing his cleansing day by day by day, man, you have this life-giving, this life-giving fellowship that you won't find anywhere else. And so when John says, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, he's giving us perspective, kind of a grid on how to, how to read this letter. He says, I want you to not sin so that you'll walk in the light, so that you'll experience this fellowship. If you go all the way to chapter 5 where he gives kind of the ultimate reason why he's writing, he says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And as you read through 1 John, he says one of the primary indicators that, you, that, that people who have eternal life, it's true of them, is that they obey God. They love one another. And so he says, and so we put it all together and we say, John is teaching us a perspective on how to avoid sin so that we might know that we have eternal life. We can experience this obedience, which is one of the primary markers of having eternal life life. And so our encouragement to you as we read through the book of 1 John, we mentioned this several weeks ago, our encouragement to you is to read this book once a week throughout this, this series. And as you read this book, ask yourself the question, okay, what am I learning here that will help me not sin? What's the perspective about God? What's the perspective about me? What's the perspective about the world? that I need to understand so that I might put away sin that slows me down and trips me up. When I was in college, I was discipled by a guy 
He told me many, many times, he said, Rat, that, that was my nickname, he said, Rat, the Bible wasn't given to us to make us smart sinners. The Bible was given to change our lives. So true, so true. So that's our encouragement. And so John is writing to these things so that we may not sin. But afterwards, after he says that in the first half of verse 1, he talks about God's provision if we do sin. And so the New Testament always takes us back to the person and work of Christ as a deterrent for sin and also as God's provision when we do sin. And so in the second half of verse 1, John mentions the first provision for us when we sin. He says, we have an advocate. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate is someone who speaks on behalf of another person. It was often used in legal contexts in the first century. It didn't really refer to kind of a defense attorney, but it referred to someone, a friend or a patron who was called to witness on behalf of, of someone else, someone who was accused. And the advocate here in this verse is Jesus Christ, who speaks up on our behalf before the Father when we sin. And so the term advocate is used four times in the Gospel of John. There it's not used of Jesus, but it's used of the Holy Spirit. It's translated the helper or the paraclete or the, uh, the counselor. And he's the one who speaks truthfully and powerfully on behalf of Jesus Christ. He often does that through people. When you see in the book of Acts, when people speak, the Holy Spirit is magnifying the name of Jesus. He's convincing people in their hearts of who Jesus is. He's prompting people to put their faith in Christ. And so if Jesus didn't have this advocate, the Holy Spirit, if he weren't a, a powerful, truthful advocate for Jesus, nobody would come to faith in Christ. Nobody would remain faithful to Christ. In a similar way, Jesus is our advocate before the Father. He powerfully and truthfully speaks on our behalf when we sin. We're already, we know from other passages that Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he forever intercedes for us. He's appealing to God on our behalf. The situation here may be very similar to what's described in Job chapter 1. And if you read that chapter, it's in chapter 2 as well. There's a divine council. There's a spiritual, this heavenly realm. And the spiritual beings are around the throne. And Satan comes before God and he accuses Job. He says, God, Job, the only reason that Job is loyal to you is because you bought him off. You've given this incredible prosperity. Anybody would, would say they're loyal to you if you gave them that. But if you take down the hedge and let me have a shot at Job, he will curse you to your face. And God allowed him to do that. But as we know, Job did not curse him to his face. But that's what Satan does. In Revelation 12, 10, he's called the accuser of believers. He accuses us day and night before our God. So it may be that John is envisioning that when we sin, Satan comes before God and he accuses us. He says, that person who you call your son, you call your daughter, that person doesn't love you. That person doesn't want you. They're following you. They're just saying that. It's a show. That person actually belongs to me. And, and John tells us that when we sin, we have an advocate before for the Father, Jesus Christ, and he speaks up on our behalf. 
And what he doesn't say is, give Steve another chance. He's a great guy. He really tries. I think he's worth it. No, he doesn't talk about us. He talks about himself. He says, that sin that Steve committed, I endured the cross. I despised the shame to pay for that sin. He doesn't belong to Satan. He belongs to you. He's been bought with the price. And so Jesus is our advocate. If you're anything like me, there are times when you sin and you just wallow in self-condemnation. You say things about yourself. You say things to yourself that you would never say about or to anybody else. You call yourself a loser and worse. You say, God is probably done with you. God doesn't want you. Well, what John tells us is that when we sin, Jesus is not up there condemning us. He is our advocate. He's speaking for us because of his sacrifice for our sin. Now, that's a powerful motivation for obedience. That doesn't make me, oh, I've got an advocate. I can run off and hide in the darkness. I can run off. No, that makes me want to draw close to God through Jesus. The second verse John mentions uh, a second more foundational provision for when we sin. Jesus is our propitiation. That's a theological term. It's hard to pronounce. It's well worth understanding. It's well worth getting a, a, a handy, simple definition for propitiation. We'll talk about it in a minute. But this is what John says. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so what does it mean that he is our propitiation? And what does it address? Well, when you read the scriptures, you you see that there are a variety of terms, there are a variety of images that are used to describe salvation and what salvation accomplishes. And the different images address address different issues. Uh, For example, we're told that Jesus won the victory over the powers of evil. We're told that in Hebrews 2. That addresses the reality that we live in a world that is, in a sense, ruled by evil spiritual beings. Satan is called the God of this world. Another example, we're told that Jesus redeemed us. He bought us with his blood. That addresses the issue that we have been sold into slavery. We are enslaved to sin. As well, another image is that of reconciliation. That's the the image of two parties that are estranged. We're told that Jesus reconciles us. He brings us back into relationship with God. When when the term propitiation is used, it addresses the issue of the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And even though it's, it's many times this is a troublesome concept to modern ears, both Testaments many times mention that we abide, and when we are in sin, we abide under the wrath of God. For example, Paul said in Ephesians 2, 3, that we were by nature children of wrath, meaning children under God's wrath, even as the rest. In Romans 2.5, after saying that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, Paul wrote, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on, uh, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
In John 3.36, we read Jesus' statement, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so how are we to understand the wrath of God? Uh, What does it mean? What does it not mean? Well, what it doesn't mean It's not that God's wrath is not this wild, irrational anger of someone who's out of control is going to make somebody pay for what he's mad about. That is not what the wrath of God means. He's not like the gods in the the Greek or the Roman pantheon who had this capricious wrath and they would just vent it at random on different people. The wrath of God is actually his settled abhorrence for sin. It's his settled abhorrence for sin. And so it's not a divine attribute of God. It's his response to human rebellion. Now, we would expect this of our, our earthly rulers and authorities. We want people that, that uh, are over us in government to love what's good and to hate what is evil. We even expect them to punish evil. And uh, in the same way, in the cosmic realm, we would expect that God would love what is good and God would hate what is evil, even that he would punish evil as, a, as a, an aspect of his holiness. And so God would be, from the point of the Bible, God would, would perspective of the Bible, God would be fully justified if he poured out his wrath on every single human being. He would be fully justified because all have sinned by nature, and by choice. But God, in his great mercy, in his great compassion, he provided a substitute for us. God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. And so the term propitiation means that the wrath of God that we deserved was satisfied by the death of Jesus on the cross. And so propitiation means that the wrath of God is satisfied. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 6, which says that the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. And so the brutality of the cross reflects the sinfulness of sin. It reflects the wrath of God that we deserved that was poured out upon Jesus And there are all sorts of caricatures to to what the Bible teaches. This is not divine child abuse, okay? This is not saying, you're guilty, I'm going to take it out on my kid, my son. It's not that. In, In the scripture, the propitiation is an expression of love by the father and the son. We're told the father sent the son, and the son willingly laid down his life for us. And so with that understanding, John writes that when we sin, we need to remember, verse 2 again, that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so this isn't just for people who currently believe. Everybody across the world who wants to avoid the wrath of God can simply come to faith, come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so John brings up the fact that Jesus is our propitiation to remind us that when we sin, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, you are just as alive to God as Jesus himself, 
You don't need to cower in fear. You don't need to go hide in the darkness. No, Jesus is our propitiation. The wrath of God is satisfied. There is no hint of wrath from God toward you. It is absolutely satisfied. I love the way Milton, Milton Vincent uh, describes what propitiation means individually for us as believers. He says, consequently, because of propitiation, God now has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me. And this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as he graciously maintains my justified status. When I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart toward me. And so we can displease God, we can grieve God, but what Paul wrote in Romans 8.1 is true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what this means, with these two verses we've considered today, it means that the, the, God, the provision that God has made for us when we sin helps us hear and move toward the commands not to sin. The fact that I have an advocate in heaven at the right hand of God, Jesus the righteous, and the fact that he is my propitiation, there's no wrath left over for me because Jesus took the wrath that I deserve, that humbles me to the core. That makes me want to seek God and please God and love God with all my life. Heavenly Father, we ask that this week, as we live our lives, that we would be mindful that Jesus is our advocate, Jesus is our propitiation. God, for anyone who has never turned to you in faith, I pray that he or she would do that, that they would, would flee to you and experience the life, the forgiveness, the cleansing that's found only in him. But God, may we avoid sin. God, when we don't, may we not run and hide. May we flee to you because you've made provision for every sin. Thank you, God, that we're not alone in this world. Thank you that we have one another. Thank you, thank you that the Holy Spirit himself abides in us. May we walk with you in freedom and joy this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.